starting us um, that we that I decided to do every year um, uh, after Easter is and just to remind us who Vintage Grace is, uh, who we are, and in, and if you're new with us, get just to acquaint you with our heart and our passion for Vintage Grace Church. And so for the next four weeks, actually, we're going to be uh, doing this series uh, DNA. Who we are now, and I'll I'll fancy it up, and I'll, I'll we'll do some different things every year. But uh, I think last year we that we called this the center. Um, this year we're calling it DNA. And uh, so, if you would um, again turn in chapter John chapter four, I'm going to start in verse four. And so, hear the word. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came. To a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Sumerian, told, Sumerian woman told him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with Sumerians. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming Whether neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, and he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things, tell us all things. 
And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is um, inerrant, in which it has no errors. It is infallible, in which it will never be proven wrong. And what it says is true is true. We know that when we come to your word, we should expect no less than to be transformed by it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak in and through your word and that you would use this broken vessel up here um, to uh, bring the good news to bear. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, um, as you can see, I am wearing um, some golf attire in part because... The one golf tournament my wife and I actually sit down and, and enjoy to watch is the Masters Tournament. And in part because we lived in Augusta for a year, and it's kind of hard not to get the Masters bug. You know, we get able to go on the course a few times, and, and it just has this mystique about it or whatever. And, so we, and we love the tournament. And, and the thing is, it, 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 what's really great about the tournament is like, there is very few golf courses that are as difficult as Augusta National. Uh, I had a friend, um, he was a businessman it was at a church, he was an elder at a church I served one year, and uh, he, was, he had a lot of friends and a lot of connections. And I noticed on his golf bag he had a, a master's towel hanging from it, and I said, hey, that's cool, where'd you get that? And I was like, have you played the math, you know, Augusta National? And he said yes, a couple times, which I was like, wow. You know, I mean, it's one thing to go, but to actually play the course. And so I asked him, you know, what, how was it? Tell me about it. And he was not a man of many words, and he said, hard. <laughs> and it is. It's a really hard course. And so what you get is some of the finest golf, or sometimes it's really not so fine golf. But here's the thing about golf, and really for that matter, any game or sport there's got to be a goal to be attained, or it just doesn't make any sense. And so, whether you are good enough to be an elite player playing Augusta National during the Masters Tournament, or like some of us who go out here at Eagle Landing and hack and you know, knock balls into the woods and dig holes with our clubs, the goal stays the same. So it doesn't matter whether you're good at it or not. The goal remains the same, which is we need, I want to hit my ball into that hole with as few strokes as I can get. And some of us achieve lower scores than others, of course. But the goal remains the same. But if there was no golf holes, if you had nothing to aim for, you might as well just go to the driving range and just, just hit. And there's no point in it. And it kind of reminds me of like little kids. So once kids get to a certain age, they, they start, you, you listen to how their games go out of here in the playground or whatever. They begin to come up with rules for their games. And, and very often you'll have a kid or two who are inventing rules as they go. Have you seen this happen? This happens all the time. It happens on every playground almost every day in the history of the world. And so one of the kids... In order to achieve his goal of being victorious on the, on the field of play is inventing rules as he goes, changing the goal. And what inevitably happens is another kid gets upset with this and says, that's not fair. Because we know there's got to be a goal. There's got to be something we're aiming for and targeting for. 
And, and this is, it's no different for a church. A church has to have a vision and a goal in which we are trying to attain. And, and so this is why we need to be reminded over and over and over again because it's really easy to move and shift away from what the goal is. So it would be like playing golf and, and you smell some azaleas and you, you wander off into the woods and your birds, you know, you're watching birds and whatever and you've forgotten the game that you've come out to play. And so... That's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. And we're going to be just going back to the basics. Who are we here at Vintage Grace Church? And we've said from the beginning, we want to be a gospel-centered church, which has gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered community, and gospel-centered mission. And it's really basic. It's really simple. And and honestly, if you ask me, that... If you are a Bible-believing church and you're basing your church on the Bible, it should have those three components. You could, there's some different variations and there's some trendier ways to talk about it. Um, but in, by and large, it should, a church should be about worship, community, and mission. That's where we get in, in Scripture. And so, that's what we're going to be. Um, we've set out to launch. So why not another church? Why not? Because we want... A church that is centered and grounded in the gospel. So let me stop here and just, again, for some of you guys, this is old hat. And I'm just, this is, but this is for those of you who may not know. So what is this gospel? A lot of people hear the word gospel, and it can mean a lot of things. It can mean a style of music, which can be entertaining, good, right? Gospel music, gospel choirs. It can be uh, that's gospel. I mean, it could be something that's supposed to be true, truer than something else. We use it that way. It's the gospel of truth. Um, but what is it when we, in here when we say gospel? All right, and let just boil it down to what we mean by gospel. Gospel um, is the story, the good news of God's coming and redeeming and fixing this big mess. And so that there's four basic elements of the gospel. Creation, that God created this world. And, and, he, and that God himself is, is, is glorious and holy and perfect and righteous. And he created this world. He created it perfect. And he created man and woman and called it good. And then, but we also fell. We call this the fall. And that man, every man and woman has fallen into sin, has rebelled against God, has turned away from him. And has begun to chart our own path. We have all like sheep gone astray. Each our own way. And then there's redemption. Which has been God's plan throughout scripture. Starting with Abraham. Going through Moses and David. And the kings of Israel. And eventually culminating in the coming of his own son. To this earth. I always say to live a life we could never live. To die a death we deserved. So that we could live with, in relationship with God. But there's another part to the gospel, which is our hope. Because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He rose on the third day and will eventually come back and will consummate his plan to redeem not just individuals, but redeem the world. 
And so there's kind of two parts to the gospel. There's an individual gospel, that is how God saves you as an individual. But then there's also the gospel that God is working a plan to save all of creation and the entire universe. It's, it's a cosmic gospel. And we want to keep those in balance. So the gospel, the, and it really comes from the Greek word, good news. It's a message of good news. And it's this message that should shape and inform, be the content and the goal of what we are as a church. It is the beginning, it's the middle, and it's the end. That's what we are as Christians. It's who we are, it's what we are. And so, our shape, our DNA needs to be grounded in the gospel. And so, when you look at gospel worship, it's worship that is motivated by, enabled by, and uh, the end goal of that is the gospel. Period. And so, what we see here in this passage, though, is that without the gospel, without God, has his plan to save and redeem, worship is not possible. Without the gospel, worship, genuine, let's say, genuine worship is not possible. And so the gospel enables us to worship. And that's what we see here, that the gospel frees us to worship. And, that, and, and it does this in a couple of different ways. First of all, the gospel frees us from the search. The gospel frees us from our search. And so what you see here in this story in John chapter 4 is Jesus, who is in his ministry traveling around um, the area, preaching, healing, and, and doing his ministry, which was to display that he himself is indeed the Messiah, and that the kingdom of God, this God's plan of redemption, has come in a special way, and it was now going to uh, begin a process of God redeeming people and the cosmos. And he's in Jerusalem and needs to go up to Galilee. And to do that, there was two ways to go. You could either go uh, around this area, which is called Samaria, or you would go straight through it. And most Jews would go around because if, they didn't like hanging out with Samarians. You kind of catch that. She says, you're talking to me, a Samarian and a woman? But instead, Jesus takes a shortcut and interacts with a woman here at this well. And what we find out about this woman is, this woman is thirsty. Now, obviously physically thirsty, because she's had to walk and make her way out of town to the well. We take, we take our tap water for granted, don't we? They say most people in the world, the vast majority, have to walk at least a mile to get water. Uh, I think that's the statistics I've heard. Maybe worse. And to just get clean water. And so she has marched her way out, which shows that she was physically thirsty, obviously. You need water to live. But what we see in her is that she is thirsty in another way. She is thirsty in her heart. Her heart is very thirsty. 
And she, once we find out, once Jesus pries open the door, and we find out about her, we find out that she has been searching and searching and searching. She's been gone from man to man to man, trying to fill up a thirst in her heart. And we all do that. Now, maybe not searching after men, but we do it in a myriad of ways. Um, we, we seek this thirst. We're, every one of us are thirsty. Maybe not physically thirsty, but we are thirsty in our hearts. And we seek, we seek to quench our thirst in all kinds of things. Money, comfort, sex and relationships like this woman, acceptance, approval, um, and the, the, even sometimes, even in our kids. Uh, if you want to talk about just the, the in our community here, the, 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 the things that people search in our culture here are these things here. Okay? Comfort and money. That's why we live here. So we, we, we move out here so that, our, the, so that there's less crime. We have a nice house and a big yard. That's, you know, and, and we live out here, and, uh, and people who drive into town, they go all these links to have money and comfort in their lives. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the problem is, is new stuff is nice, all these things, but everything gets old and breaks down. Uh, sex and relationships is a big one around this community. Um, very often, if, if you want to gather a crowd, I know like some of the big churches around here, in order to bring people in every year, they have a sex and relationships talks. And they put out signs for Valentine's Day and all of that. And all these people come in because that is such a big, important search in their life. Um, what about an acceptance and pr- approval? How many likes am I getting on Facebook or Instagram? And if somebody, somebody stops liking my, my post, then they must not like me anymore. I must made them mad. Some people actually use that. Um, and then a, a big search for meaning in, is, is kids here in our community. It is a big deal. If you want to know how big a deal it is here in this community, just go on any Saturday morning over here to the soccer fields. And you will see many a parent acting a total fool for their kid that's five years old playing soccer. You would think they were playing for a national championship. And they're yelling at the ref and they're going crazy. There's actually rules over there. I'll be honest, I was a coach. They have rules. And you can get asked to leave if you act too crazy. So they coach the coaches... You know, instruct the coaches, if parents start getting out of line, you need to, y'all need to stop and, and talk to the parents, because they do. They get crazy. But here's the thing. These, all of these things, um, or these searches, they, they leave us empty. They leave us thirsty. And so this woman was thirsty. But here's the thing. This thirst is actually a heart of inside of every one of us that longs to worship. Every person, whether religious or not, is re-worshiping something. You are created to worship. You are created to put things up and to celebrate them. And we call these 
in the Bible, they call it idols. You might call them pseudo-saviors, counterfeit saviors. If I just had a little bit more money, or if, if I could just fix my husband, he's such a deadbeat, won't take out the garbage. If I could just, if I could just, and those are the things we lift up into our hearts as, as counterfeit saviors, and, and, and what that is in, in this bottom line form is worship. And things that we use to get worth and satisfaction, power, comfort in our lives. But here's a problem with these things. Okay? Each of these things enslave us with guilt. Especially if we fail to attain what we're trying to get. Or anger if somebody blocks us from them. Or fear if they are threatened. Or drivenness since we must have them. Okay? So guilt, anger, fear, and drivenness are like a fire that destroys us. And the, the Bible tells us, and we see it here, is that, that they call this, the Bible calls this at its heart sin. Is, is to put anything in our hearts elevated above the, where our true worship should lie. With God and ultimately worshiping Jesus. That's what we call in the Bible idols. And the, and the reality is every one of us are idol worshipers. As a matter of fact, Protestant reformer John Calvin calls us idol factories. We, we, just, we produce them like, like it's an assembly line. And if you cast one aside, another one comes in its place. And that's what we see here with this woman. She's gone from man to man to man to man to man. And the thing is, even if we get the things that we want, then once we get them, we realize, oh, that isn't what I hoped it would be. I had counsel with so many people who thought they've achieved and they thought they've arrived. They thought they've met the perfect man or woman. They thought they've got enough money. And in the end, it left them thirsty. And honestly, enslaved. Because if, if your goal... Is, is money and comfort, you're a slave to work. If it's your kids, you're a slave to them. And so on. And so here's this woman Jesus encounters, and she's thirsty, and she's enslaved. And it has ruined a lot for her. It's ruined her relationship with God. There's all the guilt and shame and all the things that have come out of this. And it's ruined your relationships with other people. How do we know that? You don't draw well. You don't go out to the well in the middle of the hot day in the Middle East. It says it's the sixth hour. It's in the middle of the day. Why would she be going out to the well by herself outside of town where there's danger in the middle of the day? Well, because her sin, her pursuit has estranged her from other people. She wouldn't normally would have gone in the morning with other women. And so, the gospel frees us from the search, but it also frees us from slavery. So we see this, this thirsty woman, and, and she wants what he has. What he offers her sounds really good. You can have... Your heart's content. If you drink the water that I give you, 
you will never thirst again. And that sounds like sweet music to her ears. Doesn't it sound like that to you? That you can stop pursuing, you can stop chasing these things, that there is a satisfaction, there is a, a groundedness, a comfort, a security, a power, or whatever you're seeking that can be found in which you don't have to continue to come and look for it. And that's what Jesus offers her. And But Jesus doesn't answer her question. Did y'all notice that? She's like, where to find this water? I, you, you know, this would be great. He doesn't answer her. And the, I, Jesus does this a lot in his ministry, doesn't he? Have you ever read, you know, if you've read a lot of the gospel narratives and, and uh, narratives of Jesus, people will ask him a question and he doesn't answer their question. He'll ask like another question or he'll come up, he'll say something totally. I think it would have been really frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, just tell me the answer. And he's like, well, what do you think the answer is? Like a good professor, you know? A good, I've always I couldn't stand teachers and professors that would, you know, I would go, and I just want the answer. And like, well, well, how do you think, you know, they make me want to think about it. And that's what he's doing here. But he's not shifting the subject. He's, he's, he's trying to expose the reality of the slavery in our heart. And she's enslaved to these things. And so Jesus, um, you know, points her and ex- begins to expose this search that she has. He brings up this search of, of happiness outside of the God and how this pursuit has alienated her from God and people. And so here's the thing we need to catch here. The biggest, the largest barrier... To this woman's worship is worship. The largest barrier for her to worship has been worship. And the largest, wor- the largest barrier for you to worship is worship. It's your pursuit and worship of other things. And it's true of every one of us. And, and what Jesus does here, by challenging her narrative and her story, he's, he's challenging her to rethink the search. To stop searching for satisfaction and comfort and security, whatever she's seeking in men. To drop that, to lay it aside, and start drinking from another fountain. Start drinking from another well. Because we can't worship our pursuits. You can't worship these things and turn and worship God. We can't, in other words, we can't, you can't drink from that one fountain and also drink from the other. You're either going to drink from one or you're going to drink from the other. Jesus put it this way. God, you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve or, and money or wealth or whatever. You, the two don't work. You're going to serve one master. And the question is, which well are we going to drink from? And so this woman's barrier to worship has been worship itself. And so... And we've already said this. We're created to worship. And, and, and worship, um, if you're not worshiping God, you're not worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping something else. But whatever that something is will not be able to hold up under the weight of your expectations. 
And so the call is repent. In other words, turn away. Change direction. And he's asking this, telling this woman, change the direction that you have here and, and go another way. That's the word repent. I know the word, report, word repent is almost a dirty word in our society because it's usually some weirdo on the corner or like the guy at the Jaguar Stadium who stands out there with a the big speaker, if you've ever seen him. You know, repent or you're going to die and burn in hell and all that. We, and that becomes a negative connotation. But all it is is saying, turn around, turn from your direction, turn from that fountain and come and worship at God's fountain. And that's, in fact, the good news of the gospel, is that the gospel, this good news, frees us to do that. Because whereas before, without what Jesus has done for us, by living a perfect life, we could never live dying a death we perfectly deserve. Without him having accomplished that for us, we couldn't turn to God. We were alienated from him. Our guilt and our shame would rise up and condemn us. And it blocked access to God. But Jesus, and through his death and resurrection, has paved a way back to God. He's made the bridge so that we can turn away from these things and begin to turn and worship back with him. That is the power of the gospel to bring us back. And so by him living a perfect, sinless life, we didn't live and die in death we deserve. We can be restored back to relationship with God. That's what he's doing here with this woman. He's saying, it's time to restore your worship with the gospel. And the gospel is necessary for us to be able to turn back to God and to worship him. And then by the power of his resurrection, gives us the strength and power to actually do it. And so the gospel frees us from the search and from our slavery. But it also, this is most importantly, the gospel frees us from our separation. The gospel frees us from separation. So that the the gospel has now paved the way back to the relationship with God. So we are now called to step into deep, meaningful relationship with God. So... In other words, Jesus isn't offering here to this woman that he would just know more about God. That, he, that she would learn about God and, and, and start living a God life. Or as we would say here in the South, get right with God. Have you heard, have you heard say that? Anybody heard, have you heard anybody say that before? I can't even say that. Get right with God. And I've heard people say that. Oh, when I got right with God. And I ask them, like, well, what do you mean by that? Well... Started going to church, read my Bible, and you know, try to stop cussing, drinking, all that stuff, you know. And it's like, okay. But that's the gospel goes deeper, and it says that through what Jesus has done, the good news, we can actually step into deep, meaningful relationship with God Himself. And it's in that relationship that the chains of slavery, guilt, and, and, and shame. The estrangement from him and from other people can be let loose so that we can be free to live. But it's a challenge to actually taste God. Sounds weird. To actually taste God. In other words, 
I think about this a lot. Uh, it's a strange thing to me that people that would co- uh, have wine collections. Ever heard anybody had a wine collection? I actually knew a man who was actually fairly wealthy, and he had a very large wine collection. And when he died, it just kind of, people are trying to give this stuff away. Here, you want one? Here, you want one? And, and it was like, why would you have this huge collection of wine that you would never enjoy? So you could say you had it. Well, I got a really nice wine collection. It's great. You know, and it's, it's like, what's the point? My idea, you know, I know guys who, people who collect different expensive whiskeys and different things of that sort. And it, it's like, enjoy it if you have it. That's my thing. And it's the same way here. It's the call that we wouldn't just know about God, that we wouldn't just obey God, that we wouldn't just go through the motions and, and do the God thing or get right with God or whatever, but that we would actually taste Him. That we would know him. Um, One author put it this way. It's because Jesus Christ experienced cosmic thirst on the cross. That you and I can have our spiritual thirst satisfied. It is because he died that we can be born again. And he did it gladly seeing that what he did and why he did it will turn away our hearts from the things that enslave us and toward him in worship and turn us to relationship. So you want, are you enslaved? Are you struggling? These things are just have a grip on your heart, even if you're a believer or not, and you know it. If you want to know how to release that, taste God and his beauty. His kindness, His love, His strength, His power will overwhelm you. There was an author called Thomas Chalmers. Actually, he's a preacher. And there's a famous sermon he preached. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. It's a great title for a sermon. Expulsive power of a new affection. In his sermon, he talks about, well, let's say you, you, you drink, you're an alcoholic. And you drink too much. He's like, you know, and if you just stop drinking, the, the alcoholic will, will likely just fill that void with something else. And it's like, um, I've used this illustration, it's like if you were to get a glass, and I ask you, how do you get the air out of this glass, your answer would not, shouldn't be, well, we'll just put like a super-powered vacuum cleaner onto this glass. Because what's going to happen? If all you do is suck out the air, eventually going to smash so how do you get air out of a glass pour some water into it and that's the point Jesus the gospel frees us from our separation and in that separation as we taste the goodness of God as we work through worship expels the false worship and so if you're, are you struggling with certain things in your life, certain things that are, are capturing you or enslaving you or the guilt and the shame and the things in your life? If those things are there, the solution to it is not self-help. It's, it's not doing the ten steps that the preacher told you on Sunday. It's not any of those things. It is to taste the goodness of God. So the, the solution to those things is, in fact, worship. 
spirit-filled, heartfelt, gospel-centered worship. And this worship is every moment of our lives. Because how do I know that? Jesus interacts with the woman here at the well. And she's, so she's kind of beginning to get it. And she's like, I see that you're the prophet. And he finally says, I am the Messiah. He tells her he's the Messiah. And then she starts up another conversation of debate that was going on in Israel and between Israel and Samaria at the time in which they debated where worship would exist. Should it be in Jerusalem at the temple or should it be in Samaria? And she asked that question and Jesus said, neither. God is seeking people who worship him in spirit and in truth. And so God, what Jesus does is takes the, the localized, specific worship of Israel in one little place and says, and he blows it open and says, worship is every moment of your life. And Paul echoes it in chapter 12, Romans, and says that, that we are to be living sacrifices. That is our act of worship. That every moment of our lives are at worship of God. And so we should ask the question then, if that's true. What about Sunday mornings? Why do we do this? What's the point of Sunday mornings? And I would say Sunday mornings... Or indeed worship, we come to worship. We come to hear God's word. We come to celebrate his death and resurrection in, a commun- in communion. And, but these are in our church called ordinary means. They're ordinary. It's pretty normal. There's nothing crazy, magical, or special about it. In fact, I would say it's just a rehearsal. You've, if you've ever been in a play or performance, or in a, a music, music group, or whatever, what do you do? You rehearse. And you rehearse. Why do you rehearse? So that when life comes, and when the performance comes, you're ready. And that's why we gather on Sunday mornings, is to rehearse. And so, when we say gospel-centered worship, we first say that every moment of your life is governed and directed by worship in the gospel. And that if we squeeze you, gospel comes out. That's our goal. And in a, means, in a way to do that is we come here to rehearse. We come here to hear the gospel. We come here to sing the gospel. We come here to celebrate the gospel. It's all about the gospel. Nothing we do is not about that message of good news. And so, it's gospel-centered worship. But there's worship out there that's not gospel-centered. There's worship out there very often, especially nowadays in our culture, that is individual-centered. And the, the, the whole goal is that people would have an emotional experience. And that is the goal, is like, did you have a, oh, worship was great today, wasn't it awesome? And that band, man, they are so good. And that Russell, man, he is an amazing speaker. I've never heard a better speaker in my life. That is, if you leave here saying that, 
you have missed the point. You've played golf without a hole. This is about reflecting upon, remembering, rehearsing the gospel. The Apostle Paul, we will conclude with this. He, he, he says this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. Is that, yeah, it says this. He kind of summarizes what I just said. He says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, pursuing other things apart from God. That's my, that's my words. You saw that, right? He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Okay, so he has reconciled us. He has paved the way back to him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, here, this is what you want to catch, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And that's the challenge, that we would not shift from the gospel that we have heard. And let me tell you, it's easy as a church to do that, especially a church plant, and we're trying to become self-sustaining and, and, and survive and the vision can easily creep over into a vision of survival. And so many churches are just about surviving. How many butts and bucks can we get in the door so that we can continue on? And here's the thing, guys. I would rather us fail miserably and not be a church anymore than not stick to this goal. We must steadfastly cling to the hope of the gospel that we've heard. Even if it ends us. And you think about it in battle and in war. They don't, they don't send soldiers out and as soon as it gets a little bit hard, as soon as these people start shooting at you, oh, I'm done with this, I don't like this. No, they train, they, they focus, they rehearse, they, they, they learn that even in the face of, 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 of impossible odds, we will go even if it ends us all. That is the call that Paul gives here, that we would not shift from the hope of the gospel that we have heard. And so, practically, let's ask a couple of questions. First of all, what are, what are you pursuing? What is your heart longing for? What are you trying to, to, to achieve outside of God? And this is for whether you're a believer or not. At any moment of any day, that is a great question. Where, where am I trying to seek the things that I could get in God and other things that will fail me? And they will fail me because they were never meant to be God's. Money is a terrible God. Comfort is a horrible God. Relationships and love. Marriage is a terrible God. Kids are the worst gods. I can tell you that right now. What are you worshiping? What are you pursuing? And then let me ask you this. Are you thirsty for more? I love this passage. If you would just ask, Jesus says, if you would just ask me the water I could give you, 
it would become a spring welling up within you. And you would never thirst again. So are you crying out like David in Psalm 42? As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Jesus offers you living water. And as a church, that living water is the gospel. And that's what we must stay steadfast to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, for this interaction that we see in, in, in John's gospel that would call us away from our pursuits, that would call us away from the things that enslave us to genuine worship and relationship with you, Lord. And the good news is, because of what you've done for us on the cross, it is offered as a free gift to anyone who would believe and receive it. And so I pray if anyone here who hasn't taken that, received it, that they, even this morning, would take it, that they would believe and receive what you've done for them, that they would acknowledge their pursuit, their sin, and their false worship, that they would turn from it and return to the living fountain of living water, that they might receive grace and love and new relationship with you. And Lord, the rest of us, I pray as a church, help us to stay firm in the message that we have heard. Help us to stay the course, even when it's tempting to move away from it. Help us in that, Lord. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And as we've said...